Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring CuriosityStream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. At less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. show on civil rights. My name is Barbara Bullen and I'm one of the radio hosts for the New Heights Show on Education and the New Heights Educational Group. I hope you enjoy the show and I'm asking our listeners to consider becoming a sponsor. This show is pre-recorded. This show is based on the life of Frederick Douglass, taken from Wikipedia, en.wikipedia.org backslash wiki backslash Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, February 1817 or 1818 to February 20th, 1895, was an African-American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman. After escaping from slavery in Maryland, he became a national leader of the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and New York, becoming famous for his oratory and incisive anti-slavery writings. Accordingly, he was described by abolitionists in his time as a living counterexample to slaveholders' arguments that slaves lacked the intellectual capacity to function as independent American citizens. Northerners at the time found it hard to believe that such a great orator had once been a slave. It was in response to this disbelief that Douglas wrote his first autobiography. Douglas wrote three autobiographies describing his experiences as a, as a slave in his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, 1845, which became a bestseller and was influential in promoting the cause of abolition, as was his second book, My Bondage and My Freedom, 1855. Following the Civil War, Douglas was an active campaigner for the rights of freed slaves and wrote his last autobiography, Life and Times of Frederick Douglass. First published in 1881 and revised in 1892, Three years before his death, the book covers events both during and after the Civil War. Douglas also actively supported women's suffrage and held several public offices. Without his permission, Douglas became the first African-American nominated for vice president 
of the United States as the running mate and vice presidential nominee of Victoria Woodhull, Woodhull on the Equal Rights Party ticket. Douglas believed in dialogue and in making alliances across racial and ideological divides as well as liberal values of the US Constitution when radical abolitionists under the motto no union with slaveholders criticized Douglas's willingness to engage in dialogue with slaveholders with slave owners he replied i would unite with anybody to do right and with nobody to do wrong Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey was born into slavery on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay in Talbot County, Maryland. The plantation was between Hillsborough and Cordova. His birthplace was likely his grandmother's cabin east of Tappas Corner and west of Tuckahoe Creek. In his first autobiography, Douglas stated, I have no accurate knowledge of my age, never having seen an authentic record containing it. However, based on the extant records of Douglas's former owner, Aaron Anthony, historian Dixon J. Preston, determined that Douglas was born in February 1818. Though the exact date of his birth is unknown, he chose to celebrate February the 14th as his birthday, remembering that his mother called him her little valentine. Douglas was of mixed race, which likely included Native American and African on his mother's side, as well as European. In contrast, his father was almost certainly white, according to historian David W. Blight in his 2018 biography of Douglas. Douglas said his mother, Harriet Bailey, gave him his name, Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, and after he escaped to the North in September 1838, he took the name he took the surname Douglas, having already dropped his two middle names. He later wrote of his earliest times with his mother. The opinion was whispered that my master was my father, but of the correctness of this opinion I know nothing. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant. It is a common custom in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. I do not recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lay down with me and get me to sleep. But long before I waked, she was gone. After separation from his mother during infancy, young Frederick lived with his maternal grandmother, Betsy Bailey, who was also a slave, and his maternal grandfather, Isaac, who was free. Betsy would live until 1849. Frederick's mother remained on the plantation about 12 miles away, only visiting Frederick a few times before her death when he was seven years old. Returning much later, about 1883, to purchase land in Talbot County that was meaningful to him, he was invited to address a colored school. I once knew a little colored boy whose, fa whose mother and father died when he was six years old. He was a slave and had no one to care for him. He slept on a dirt floor in a hovel, and in cold weather would crawl into a meal bag, head foremost, and leave his feet in the ashes to keep them warm. Often he would roast an ear of corn and eat it to satisfy his hunger, and many times as he crawled under the barn or stable and secured eggs, which he would roast in the fire and eat. 
The boy did not wear pants like you do, but a tow linen shirt. Schools were unknown to him, and he learned to spell from an old Webster's spelling book and to read and write from posters on cellar and barn doors, while boys and men would help him. He would then preach and speak and soon became well known. He became presidential elector, United States marshal, United States recorder, United States diplomat and accumulated some wealth. He wore broadcloth and didn't have to divide crumbs with the dogs under the table. That boy was Frederick Douglass. At the age of six, Frederick was separated from his grandparents and moved to the Y House Plantation, where Aaron Anthony worked as overseer. After Anthony died in 1826, Douglas was given to Lucretia Auld, wife of Thomas Auld, who sent him to serve Thomas's brother, Hugh Auld, in Baltimore. Douglas felt that he was lucky to be in the city, where he said slaves were almost free men compared to those on plantations. When Douglas was about 12, Hugh Auld's wife, Sophia, began teaching him the alphabet. From the day he arrived, she saw to it that Douglas was properly fed and clothed and that he slept in a bed with sheets and a blanket. Douglas described her as a kind and tender-hearted woman who treated him as she supposed one human being ought to treat another. Hugh Auld disapproved of the tutoring, feeling that literacy would encourage slaves to desire freedom. Douglas later referred to this as the first decidedly anti-slavery lecture he had ever heard. Very well, thought I, wrote Douglas, knowledge unfits a child to be a slave. I instinctively assented to the proposition, and from that moment I understood the direct pathway from slavery to freedom. Under her husband's influence, Sophia came to believe that education and slavery were incompatible, and one day snatched a newspaper away from Douglas. She stopped teaching him altogether and hid all potential reading materials, including her Bible, from him. In his autobiography, Douglas related how he learned to read from white children in the neighborhood and by observing the writings of the men with whom he worked. Douglas continued secretly to teach himself to read and write. He later often said, knowledge is the pathway from slavery to freedom. As Douglas began to read newspapers, pamphlets, political materials, and books of every description, this new realm of thought led him to question and condemn the institution of slavery. In later years, Douglas credited the Columbian orator and anthology that he discovered at about age 12 with clarifying and defining his views on freedom and human rights. First published in 1797, the book is a classroom reader containing essays, speeches, and dialogues to assist students in learning reading and grammar. He later learned that his mother had also been literate, about which he would later declare. I am quite willing, and even happy, to attribute any love of letters I possess, and for which I have got, despite of prejudices, only too much credit, not to my admitted Anglo-Saxon paternity, but to the native genius of my sable, unprotected, and uncultivated mother, a woman who belonged to a race whose mental endowments it is, at present, fashionable to hold in disparagement and contempt. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. 
Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying the New Heights show on education and want to support or donate to our organization, please visit www.newheightseducation.org. And while you're there, check out our online store. Welcome back to the New Heights Show on Education. My name is Barbara Bullen, and I'm the radio host for this show. This show is pre-recorded and focuses on the history of civil rights. A recap of the first segment of the show on Frederick Douglass will continue. When Douglass was hired out to William Freeland, he gathered, eventually, more than 30 male slaves on Sundays and sometimes even on weeknights in a Sabbath literacy school. For about six months, their study went relatively unnoticed. While Freeland remained complacent about their activities, other plantation owners became incensed about their slaves being educated. One Sunday, they burst in on the gathering armed with clubs and stones to disperse the congregation permanently. In 1833, Thomas Auld took Douglas back from Hugh as a means of punishing Hugh. Douglas later wrote, Thomas sent Douglas to work for Edward Covey, a poor farmer who had a reputation as a slave breaker. He whipped Douglas so frequently that his wounds had little time to heal. Douglas later said that the frequent whippings broke his body, soul, and spirit. The 16-year-old Douglas finally rebelled against the beatings, however, and fought back. After Douglas won a physical confrontation, Covey never tried to beat him again. Recounting his beatings at Covey's farm in narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, Douglass described himself as a man transformed into a brute. Still, Douglass came to see his physical fight with Covey as life-transforming and introduced the story in his autobiography as such. You have seen how a man was made a slave. You shall see how a slave was made a man. Douglas first tried to escape from Freeland, who had hired him from his owner, but was unsuccessful. In 1837, Douglas met and fell in love with Anna Murray, a free black woman in Baltimore, about five years his senior. Her free status strengthened his belief in the possibility of gaining his own freedom. Murray encouraged him and supported his efforts by aid and money. New on Curiosity Stream, have researchers figured out a mathematical formula for success? A clearer understanding of how success happens could lead us to change the rules. Gain a new perspective on getting ahead. It's science of success. And the U.S. won the space race, but not without help from the Nazis. They were just years ahead of us. Meet NASA's rocket scientists of the Third Reich on the moon landing and the Nazis. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. On September the 3rd, 1838, 
Douglas successfully escaped by boarding a northbound train of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad. The area where he boarded was thought to be a short distance east of the train depot in a recently developed neighborhood between the modern neighborhoods of Harbor East and Little Italy. This depot was at President and Fleet Streets east of the basin of the Baltimore Harbor on the northwest branch of the Padapsco River. Research cited in 2021, however, suggests that Douglas, in fact, boarded the train at the Canton Depot of the Philadelphia, Wilmington and Baltimore Railroad on Boston Street in the Canton neighborhood of Baltimore further east. Young Douglas reached Harvey de Grace, Maryland in Harford County in the northeast corner of the state along the southwest shore of the Susquehanna River which flowed into the Chesapeake Bay. Although this placed him only some 20 miles from the Maryland-Pennsylvania state line, it was easier to continue by rail through Delaware, another slave state. Dressed in a sailor's uniform provided to him by Murray, who also gave him part of her savings to cover his travel costs, he carried identification papers and protection papers that he obtained from a free black seaman. Douglas crossed the wide Susquehanna River by the railroad steam ferry at Harvard de Grace to Perryville on the opposite shore in Cecil County, then continued by train across the state line to Wilmington, Delaware, a large port at the head of the Delaware Bay. From there, because the rail line was not yet completed, he went by steamboat along the Delaware River further northeast to the Quaker city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, an anti-slavery stronghold. He continued to the safe house of noted abolitionist David Ruggles in New York City. His entire journey to freedom took less than 24 hours. Douglas later wrote of his arrival in New York City. I have often been asked how I felt when first I found myself on free soil and my readers may share the same curiosity. There is scarcely anything in my experience about which I could not give a more satisfactory answer. A new world had opened up upon me. If life is more than breath and the quick round of blood, I lived more in one day than in a year of my slave life. It was a time of joyous excitement, which words can but tamely describe. In a letter written to a friend soon after reaching New York, I said, I felt as one might feel upon escape from a den of hungry lines, anguish and grief, like darkness and rain, may be depicted, but gladness and joy, like the rainbow, defies the skill of pen or pencil. Once Douglas had arrived, he sent for Murray to follow him north to New York. She brought the basics with them to set up a home. They were married on September the 15th, 1838, by a black Presbyterian minister just 11 days after Douglas had reached New York. At first, they adopted Johnson as their married name to divert attention. The couple settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts, an abolitionist center full of former slaves. In 1838, moving to Lynn, Massachusetts in 1841, after meeting and staying with Nathan and Mary Johnson, they adopted Douglas as their married name. Douglas had grown up using his mother's surname of Bailey. After escaping slavery, he had changed his first 
he had changed his surname first to Stanley and then to Johnson. In New Bedford, the latter was such a common name that he wanted one that was more distinctive and asked Nathan Johnson to choose a suitable surname. Nathan suggested Douglas. After having read the poem, The Lady of the Lake by Walter Scott, in which two of the principal characters have the surname Douglas. Douglas thought of joining a white Methodist church, but was disappointed from the beginning upon finding that it was segregated. Later, he joined the African Methodist Epi Episcopal Zion Church, an independent black denomination first established in New York City, which counted among its members Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. He became a licensed preacher in 1839, which helped him to hone his oratorical skills. He held various positions, including steward, Sunday school superintendent, and sexton. In 1840, Douglas delivered a speech in Elmira, New York, then a station on the Underground Railroad, in which a black congregation would form years later, become the region's largest church by 1940. Douglas also joined several organizations in New Bedford and regularly attended abolitionist meetings. He subscribed to William Lord Garrison's weekly newspaper, The Liberator. He later said that no face and form ever impressed me with such sentiments of the hatred of slavery as did those of William Lord Garrison. So deep was his influence that in his last autobiography, Douglas said, his paper took a place in my heart second only to the Bible. Garrison was likely impressed with Douglas and had written about his anti-colonization stance in The Liberator as early as 1839. Douglas first heard Garrison speak in 1841 at a lecture that Garrison gave in Liberty Hall, New Bedford. At another meeting, Douglas was unexpectedly invited to speak. After telling his story, Douglas was encouraged to become an anti-slavery lecturer. A few days later, Douglas spoke at the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society's annual convention in Nantucket. Then, 23 years old, Douglas conquered his nervousness and gave an eloquent speech about his rough life as a slave. While living in Lynn, Douglas engaged in early protests against segregated transportation. In September 1841, at Lynn Central Square Station, Douglas and friend James N. Botham were thrown off an Eastern Railroad train because Douglas refused to sit in the segregated railroad coach. In 1843, Douglas joined other speakers in the American Anti-Slavery Society's 100 Conventions Project, a six-month tour at meeting halls throughout the Eastern and Midwestern United States. During this tour, Slavery supporters frequently accosted Douglas. At a lecture in Pendleton, Indiana, an angry mob chased and beat Douglas before a local Quaker family. The Hardys rescued him. His hand was broken in the attack. It healed improperly and bothered him for the rest of his life. A stone marker in Falls Park in the Pendleton Historic District commemorates this event. In 1847, Douglas explained to Garrison, I have no love for America as such. I have no patriotism. I have no country. What country have I? The institutions of this country do not know me, do not recognize me as a man. 
Douglas's best-known work is in his first autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, written during his time in Lynn, Massachusetts, and published in 1845. At the time, some skeptics questioned whether a black man could have produced such an eloquent piece of literature. The book received generally positive reviews and became an immediate bestseller. Within three years, it had been reprinted nine times with 11,000 copies circulating in the United States. It was also translated into French and Dutch and published in Europe. Douglas published three autobiographies during his lifetime and revised the third of these, each time expanding on the previous one. The 1845 narrative was his biggest seller and probably allowed him to raise the funds to gain his legal freedom the following year, as discussed below. In 1855, Douglas published My Bondage and My Freedom. In 1881, in his 60s, Douglas published Life and Times of Frederick Douglass, which he revised in 1892. Douglass's friends and mentors feared that the publicity would draw the attention of his ex-owner, Hugh Auld, who might try to get his property back. They encouraged Douglass to tour Ireland, as many former slaves had done. Douglas set sail on the Cambria for Liverpool, England, on August 16, 1845. He travelled to Ireland as the Great Famine was beginning. The feeling of freedom from American racial discrimination amazed Douglas. Eleven days and a half gone, and I have crossed 3,000 miles of the perilous deep. Instead of a democratic government, I am under a monarchical government. Instead of the bright blue sky of America, I am covered with a soft grey fog of the Emerald Isle Island. I breathe, and lo, the chattel slave becomes a man. I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity, claim me as a slave, or offer me as an insult. I employ a cab. I am seated beside white people. I reach the hotel. I enter the same door. I am shown into the same parlour. I dine at the same table and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. When I go to church, I am met by no upturned nose and scornful lip to tell me we don't allow niggers in here. Still, Douglas was astounded by the extreme levels of poverty he encountered, much of it reminding him of his experiences in slavery. In a letter to William Lord Garrison, Douglas wrote, I see much here to remind me of my former condition, and I confess I should be ashamed to lift up my voice against American slavery, but that I know the cause of humanity is won the world over. He who really and truly feels for the American slave cannot steal his heart to the woes of others, and he who thinks himself an abolitionist yet cannot enter into the wrongs of others has yet to find a true foundation for his anti-slavery faith. He also met and befriended the Irish nationalist and strident abolitionist Daniel O'Connell, who was to be a great inspiration. Douglas spent two years in Ireland and Great Britain, lecturing in churches and chapels. His draw was such that some facilities were crowded to suffocation. One example was his hugely popular London reception speech which Douglas delivered in May 1846 at Alexander Fletcher's Finsbury Chapel. Douglas remarked that in England he was treated not as a colour but as a man. 
1846, Douglas met with Thomas Clarkson, one of the last living British abolitionists who had persuaded Parliament to abolish slavery in Great Britain's colonies. During this trip, Douglas became legally free, as British supporters led by Anna Richardson and her sister-in-law, Ellen of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, raised funds to buy his freedom from his American owner, Thomas Auld. Many supporters tried to encourage Douglas to remain in England, but with his wife still in Massachusetts and three million of his black brethren in bondage in the United States, he returned to America in the spring of 1847, soon after the death of Daniel O'Connell. In the 21st century, historical plaques were installed on buildings in Cork and Waterford, Ireland and London to celebrate Douglas's visit. The first is on the Imperial Hotel in Cork and was unveiled on August 31st, 2012. The second is on the facade of Waterford City Hall, unveiled on October 7th, 2013. It commemorates his speech there on October 9th, 1845. The third plaque adorns Nail Gwynne House, South Kensington in London, at the site of an earlier house where Douglas stayed with the British abolitionist George Thompson. Douglas spent time in Scotland and was appointed Scotland's anti-slavery agent. He made anti-slavery speeches and wrote letters back to the USA. He considered the city of Edinburgh to be elegant, grand and very welcoming. Maps of the places in the city that were important to his stay are held by the National Library of Scotland. A plaque and a mural on Gilmore Place in Edinburgh mark his stay there in 1846. A variety of collaborative projects are currently in 2021 underway to commemorate Frederick Douglass's journey and visit to Ireland in the 19th century. This comes to the conclusion of the show. Next week's show will continue on the life of Frederick Douglass. Thank you for listening. You can reach me by email, barbarab at newheightseducation.org. Be sure to join me every Sunday at radio.newheightseducation.org, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I discuss the history of civil rights. Also join Pamela Clark's pre-recorded shows, which airs Wednesday by 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Civil rights is our right. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings. Curiosity Stream. This bear's walking right at me. We'll see if he wants trouble or not. Follow filmmaker Casey Anderson as he gets an unprecedented face-to-face look at Alaska's fiercest carnivores on the Tracker's Diary, Bears of Katmai. Plus, why is a tiny island in the Pacific one of America's most crucial outposts? Discover the truth behind this mysterious trans-Pacific stopover on Extremities Wake Island. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.